2: We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Died Green.
1: I'm Kate McCabe.
3: And I'm Max Sussman
1: beef. It's what's for dinner.
3: It's what's for dinner, and it's also what's for conversation today, as a matter of fact.
1: Our guest on today's show is Pat Whelan, a fifth-generation farmer and butcher and the author of the now 10-year-old Irish beef book, cookbook. The Irish Beef Bible, a cookbook that Pat wrote in collaboration with food writer Katie McGinnis. I wasn't sure what to expect with this conversation, we love talking about food. We love talking about Irish food. Th- this is our first interview that we've ever done with a butcher.
3: Yeah, it made me want to interview more butchers. It was. It really made me cool. want
1: to buy a lot of beef and to eat a lot of beef. And you know, when we were talking about <laughs> apologies for our vegan vegetarian listeners, are there any out there? Um, no. In all seriousness, when we were talking about learning the different ways that you're supposed to prepare meat. And I was talking about the dry-aged ribeyes that used to have to rest. When I worked at the Breslin with April Bloomfield, in the window, when we were talking about dry-aging the beef, I could smell it.
3: Oh, that's so interesting. Like, I can I smell, smell it right now. I not actually think about that, but I can smell it right now. It's, very, it's a brain... It's a memory smell.
1: I also really want to see if I can get some... Beef drippings shipped. Yeah. Because, wow.
3: Yeah, so Pat became known for beef drippings that won a very prestigious award in the...
1: The Supreme Taste Awards. This is really only in the last few years, though. This is, like, pretty recently. So
3: beef drippings, time has come. Time in the spotlight has come. But all joking aside, this was a really good dyed green conversation. I think it brought together a lot of the areas that we really like to get into in like
1: sourcing in a your deep meat sort of sustainability yeah. like, whole animal butchery terroir
3: yeah and connection with the land and the people that are involved and
1: vacation
3: yeah a lot of really good culinary
1: stuff. custodian
3: so culinary coach if you're still listening to this intro and you're not sure whether to keep listening to this episode I would highly recommend it
1: one thing that I really liked that I wasn't really expecting you know we talk about the culture we talk about Irish food culture and we talk about family farms Pat mentioned a couple of times the incredibly large number of small holdings for, for beef farms. One thing that really stood out to me was the way that Pat talked about his parents and their story and how that inspired him to become both a business person that he is today, but also the custodian, for lack of a better word, for both the land and respect for the animals.
3: Yeah, people are always asking us, like, oh, what's the big deal about, like, what's special about Irish food? What's the big deal about Irish food? And there's like a bunch of ways to answer that question. And I think that this whole podcast is is like dedicated to answering that question. But I think talking to Pat and seeing the way he sees Irish beef is a really good way of answering that question. Like everything from the fact that it's primarily a bunch of really small farmers that have a common adherence to a set of quality standards, um, a bunch of stuff that like leads up to the flavor being really, really good, but doesn't just start from that perspective. And like something that we didn't talk about that we could have talked about more was there are a lot of challenges, right? Like we still don't want to be eating like beef all the time. You know, these are all parts of the Irish food story. And I think that this conversation is a really important part of that.
1: Oh, you know, and I might edit this out later, but a lot of people remark at how Ireland produces a disproportionate amount of poets and literary greats. And honestly, just listen to the way that Pat talks about animals and about farming and butchering and you will gain a little bit more insight into just the passion that Irish people have for the work that they do, regardless of the industry and the connection to place. And that is another thing that really stood out to me. And I'm really excited for you to listen to this interview with Pat Whelan, Master Butcher. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are the first butcher that we've ever had on Dye Green. So we're really excited to talk to you about all things meat and butchery today. You're a fifth generation farmer and butcher. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to grow up on an Irish beef farm.
4: Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really particular um, a business and a really particular approach to, um, to business. So when you think about uh, the meat business, you think about cattle first and uh, you have uh, this idea that it's it's just beef, you know, but in the meat business, we sell poultry, we sell lamb, we sell pork. So when you grow up in, on a farm um, like ours, it wasn't only beef, it was uh, uh, lamb was a big part of what we produced as well. So you got to work, you got to be part of, uh, you got connected with nature in a way that it's uh, hard to explain. You know, um, you you saw the fundamentals of agriculture uh, in practice and uh, you got a great sense um, of uh, nurture and nature. You also got a great sense of um, how to develop and grow and you got a sense of belonging. And the belonging gave you um, a sense of, of, I won't say importance, but value and from a very early age you get that sense of value and connected to something so uh, it's a very long winded way of expl- explaining a very wholesome upbringing connected with nature and uh, and a great understanding of nurture nature and and the environment itself you know
3: do you think that's comparable to how like vegetable farmers experience farming as well do you think I'm there's not- a different kind of connection
4: that I'm not. That I'm had. not. I, I think there's a certain responsibility in in the meat industry, and a responsibility about. I can only, you know, I, I get that sense of responsibility, and especially around livestock and, and animals. Um, it's something that's. It's just interesting. It's a very interesting comparable, because when you start to think about it, uh, there's a lot of similarities, but I just feel that. Um, I don't know whether it's a warmer connection with. Through the animal, that there's something uh, I just feel closer to to farming when there's animals involved, but I have no experience of of growing vegetables. But it's a very hard one to explain in that you get the nurture and nature piece as well in a different way. But I don't know. There's some connection with uh, living, and I'm not saying vegetables aren't living things. You know, they they all have unique characteristics. But I think there's something really interesting about that connection with the animal. You know.
1: Was there ever a time that you thought that you might want to do something else or did you know from when you were a small child that you would take over when you got older?
4: Um, You know when you grow up in a family business it's kind of a it's an extension of who you are and what you stand for and so on and so forth in in an awful lot of cases especially around food. So um, I spoke to you about the sense of belonging that farming brings to it but Equally, uh, a family business, you get a great sense of belonging and a sense of purpose because uh, when it comes to food and particularly meat, um, family life and business life, and uh, they kind of all mingle into together. Because when you sit down to to eat, you're normally eating products that you've produced, and it's almost like a, a quality test or a, an analysis of um, and a measurement of. And so, there was always that sense of belonging or sense of connectivity to it. And I went like everybody everyone else in the house and had an education and uh, studied business and marketing. But I was always drawn back to the business in an unusual way. I was always there under the, the guise of helping. Um, but you were more than helping because you were involved in the conversation all the time, you know. Even when you were studying, you were still in touch. And at Christmas, you were involved in seasonal trade. And and there's there was all the opportunities that family business brings so There wasn't really a kind of ever a time that I was separated from it. uh, And there was never a time I was too far away from it. And there was never really um, a discussion of who would or wouldn't get involved in it. It was kind of, it nearly kind of happened naturally. um, And I don't think there was a conscious decision ever made that I was going to pursue this uh, or not pursue it. It was something that I loved and I always wanted to be involved even when I wasn't directly involved on a full-time basis, I was still involved. If you know, you were still connected. Do you think the
3: culture around raising livestock has changed since you were growing up? And if so, what are some of the factors that have gone into that?
4: Could you ask me that question again? Because uh, it's a very good question and I want to make sure I understand it completely.
3: Well, I mean, I'm just thinking of, you know, in a lot of ways, the trend towards maybe like specialization in single animal farms as opposed to farms where there are many, many different types of animals around, and even maybe the trend towards like export-oriented farming and things like that. And I'm just wondering if those, my question was sort of around like how some of those economic changes maybe have impacted the way that, um, you know, yeah, the I way think, that I is. think.
4: Yeah, I think we all have an idea of um, how the landscape is and uh, and we all have a perception of that and we're fed a certain narrative or we're, we're led to believe certain things about it but it's only when you go and examine it that you actually understand what it is or be part of it um, and in, in trying to bring a level of uh, a level of understanding to the conversation uh, one of the most interesting things that I came across when I was doing research for the Irish Beef Book which is over 10 years old now was that there, on this tiny island of ours, there are over 120,000 small holdings, beef holdings, uh, small holdings uh, attached to the beef industry. And I was fascinated by that because, you know, it shows you the diversity. It shows you the uh, the colour. It shows you the depth and it shows you the commitment and it shows you so much about us as a people and us as a connected people to land, and also as a, a connected uh, people to the whole livestock and agriculture industry, and yeah, when you look look in a huge other huge number, huge, huge proportionately it's massive. But when you look in other parts of the world, uh, in large land masses and continents of America and Australia and all those other glorious places in the world, and you see the beef industry or the cattle industry, and uh, it's way way bigger in terms of land mass and volume or numbers. But the control of that whole business is in the hands of very few. So um, I think we have something really, really special in, in this island. Um, I think we're positioned beautifully from a climatic viewpoint. And I think there's rich diversity in the soil and and also in the produce. So, you know, I often think about the meat industry in a in a way that I kind of romanticize sometimes about the wine industry. And when you look at the wine, the farmers who grow grapes and, and make uh, wine, they actually, um, we have a lot to learn from them because they really do an awful lot to connect us with their product through uh, their commitment to the land and to the environment. And when sometimes you walk into a, a good wine shop and you start to read about the product, and you have to remember that. Uh, they're selling a, a liquid, which is either it, two colors. It's either red or white, you know, in, in the main and, and, and the hybrid version of Rosé and some with a bit of sparkle or fizz being champagne or whatever, or cava or, or, or whatever. But it's a liquid. and uh, But they will talk to you about the direction of the sun. They will talk to you about the wind. They will talk to you about the appellation, the Terroir. They'll talk to you about, you know, lots of lots of different stuff ever before they talk about the product. And I think we kind of miss a beat sometimes in connecting the customer with that side of of the beef product, and of our, particularly the Irish beef product, because uh, we don't connect the place as much as we should to the individuality of each piece of meat that we produce on this beautiful in this beautiful island. And I think we could get great inspiration from from that whole uh, sector of what uh, of what you can potentially produce and. And the backstory is part of the uniqueness of the product. And the more honesty you can build into that, the more connected the consumer is going to be uh, to understanding the individual characteristics that translate into uh, the great beef we produce.
1: Yeah, it's making me think, you know, we've had other guests on the show that have talked about the terroir of butter, for example, and about how um, some chefs can Identify the farm that the cow came from when they're tasting butter from a local dairy. So it definitely stands to reason that you would be able to taste beef in the same way. And I'm also thinking about when we travel around Ireland, oftentimes you're on a road somewhere and you're passing this gorgeous landscape and you'll see cows just living an incredible, what seems to be an incredible life, maybe in a field that is you know, near the edge of the cliff and you have the ocean and you have the breeze. And it's hard to imagine that the environmental impacts of being raised in a field right by the sea, you know, is not actually that. It
3: It has an impact.
1: It has an impact that that, that the grass, you know, is Mm -hmm. in the.
4: I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about the iodonic property of the air in that environment overlooking the sea and how that must or can potentially have uh, um, a very positive impact on the well-being of the animal and how that translates into uh, into everything positive and and the whole the whole idea or notion of of the salt that's in the air naturally coming through or resonating into the taste of the of the product eventually i i I don't i think it's about aligning uh, aligning those natural things and uh, trying to actually examine them and looking at looking at that product from that area with that filter or lens to create more interest and more curiosity and more appreciation of what it is we are producing. You know,
3: Can I ask like a little bit about your about the business itself and now not not every butcher is a farmer and not every farmer is a butcher. Right. So which came first and then which grew out of the other
4: for you? You know it's so interesting, and uh, on my mom's side, butchering goes back five generations, and her and and that's where the butchering comes from. And my dad's side were farmers, so in their union, um, they became they brought unique skills in a business together. And my mother taught my father the whole butchering side of the business, and uh, and he himself uh, was a great innovator and uh, somebody who really liked to, uh, I suppose, move things on in his own words and to try and develop and grow and uh, was always uh, creative in in his approach and ahead of his time, I always felt in his approach to uh, agriculture and the whole uh, production of meat. So um, to answer the question, it kind of came, there wasn't a timing, piece to it. It came together uh, in two people falling in love and creating a business. And, you know, my involvement in the industry was inspired by their, um, by that whole story and their commitment to it and my love of those two people because I saw how hard they worked when we were children and I saw their commitment and um, I always felt that, you know, they deserved more and I always felt that uh, I wanted to do more for them and, you uh, I always admired and respected how committed they were to delivering the beautiful products they made. And, uh, you know, their commitment was really clear. And from a very early age, my father taught me about business and uh, he taught me a very simple lesson. And uh, he said he uh, gave me, I suppose, the fundamentals of business. And I, I tell people even today about that simple story he told me. And he basically explained business to have three pillars he said that the three pillars are as follows he, he, he said pillar one is quality sorry they don't go in order they're three pillars quality service and price and he said to be successful you can you have to choose any two and you need to make up your mind what two you want to what two you want to choose and you need to be you need to stick to the two and he always explained the founding values of our own business would be on the on those two principles of, of quality and service, and I really understood it from a very very early age through that simple explanation of what it what it was all about, and uh, and there was a zero compromise to to that at all times. So I suppose the understanding came early in life, and then the appreciation grew based on that understanding. And the respect just kept going and going and going because it just, in my eyes, it got better and better and better. And we all have, you know, I had a, I have a beautiful relationship with my parents because it's, it's all about that respect. And in my eyes, they can do no wrong whatsoever. And, you know, when you have that fundamental understanding of what they were trying to achieve with the business and how they, they wanted to grow it it was very easy to support and you knew where you could and you knew where you wanted to add, or you could add value to the whole, that whole commitment. And, uh, it was very simple and I wanted it. I wanted even more for them all my life, you know? So as far as they worked, I wanted to work harder for them and it came out of that, if that makes any sense, because for me, it's, it's very personal, you know?
3: Yeah. I, I, I love that, um, those pillars and as a chef, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Sometimes you do have to to pick and choose. I'm really curious about what what it means to compete on quality from your perspective. Like, what does that mean? Is it uh, a fresher product? Is it a more flavorful product? Is it like the value add stuff that I think you just mentioned? Like, how do you, you know, when you're dealing with something that's so close to the, the point of origin, how do you improve quality?
4: I think, um, I think, one of the mistakes people make is trying to define it. And I think what you need to probably do is um, look at it slightly different. And the way I do that is every day I wake up, I I have a routine and it's about being thankful, firstly. And secondly, um, I have a, a motto in business that I want to give the customer more. So in everything we do, we try and give more. Um, And that is very hard to define, but it's an approach that has sustained and developed the business in a a true and meaningful way. And more, as we understand it, doesn't have to be bigger or greater or anything. It's it's about moving continuously towards better, uh, wanting more for the customer, wanting to give more to the customer, and, and that can be around, around many different aspects of what we do. Um, more information, more knowledge, more wisdom, more experience at one level. But from our point of view, it drives us to do things a little bit differently, uh, to get more out of what we're producing and to get a better understanding of how we get more out, uh, which leads, which underpins our whole commitment to sustainability. Um, so... In trying to define quality, it's about uniqueness. Uh, it's about understanding the subject and understanding where you can add value. And it's that unique add value or value add, whatever way that the modern parlance goes, is what gives the character to the business you're creating. So thinking about things slightly different, uh, utilizing things in a unique way, and um, in all your decision making you're anchoring it around principles that are um are simple and are aligned to those quality and service um founding values that the business is about so it's something something considered something um something where through your own capability or your own uh, professional ability that you can add uniqueness to the product either through your touch or your through how you treat it to give it that unique characteristic, and I go back again to thinking about the wine industry, and it has given me a great um, amount of inspiration in my time. And on the many visits to vineyards, and you hear their approach to the whole process of winemaking, and and how they blend grapes and the particular type of grape, and how they uh, the, how the process is just as important. I think taking the, res- the whole responsible piece, the responsibility piece around how you how you create great meat is, is really important as well. Understanding the subject, understanding the process, understanding all ele- elements of the process and how you can add uniqueness to that. And then understanding, you, you know, if you, if you take the skill set I'm talking about, you talk about a farmer being able to understand the characteristics of the animal, um understand when the animal is is mature and when the animal has developed to uh, to a stage where it is um, mature enough to harvest and then it's the whole responsibility around taking the life of the animal and how you do that and the respect you do that with Um, and then it's about the maturation of the carcass and then understanding that process and understanding the enzyme, the displacement of moisture, the development of flavor. And then it's further about um, harvesting the carcass into into cuts cuts that are relevant to the consumers you're serving, but doing it in a very respectful way and understanding that respect is at the heart of that and the utilization of the carcass right down to the bones is really important because the sacrifice the animal has paid is superb. So you know, that's kind of where I'm at when you ask me about adding value and quality. And maybe it's too, maybe I've gone too far off the subject, but...
3: That was an amazing uh, answer. And it was totally not what I was expecting. So that was really interesting, actually. A lot of different follow-up questions, but I think Kate has one right now as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, my question was more, I guess, about beef culturally, and we can come back to some of the things that you said, but I wanted to share that some of my earliest food memories are from the Sunday dinners that we used to have at my Irish grandmother's house in New Jersey. And we would often have a standing rib roast amongst Mm -hmm. other things. When, when I was younger and there, there's a great picture, I'll have to see if I can find it of my sister and I, we used to fight about who got to eat the meat from the beef bones and my favorite was like the grisly kind of fatty parts on the edge of the, the bone. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of beef in Irish food culture. Is it something that is eaten often or you know, would something like that be saved more for special occasions? How do people eat it today and what are some of the more popular ways to, to prepare it?
4: The interesting thing about... Um, the interesting thing about... Um, About When when you look at this as a subject, the interesting thing is the importance of meat in the Irish diet and the importance of meat on the Irish dinner plate. Um, It's still important, really important. And I would say the importance is elevated to the point that on the dinner plate, if the veg is a disaster and the meat is good, the dinner is okay. However, if the meat is not good and the veg is great, the dinner is a disaster. So, and I say that with absolute respect to everybody in the industry, uh, both in the horticulture industry and, and the meat industry. It's just how it is in, in the psyche of people. And success is measured by empty plates. Um, and there's a kind of a, there's a willingness, sorry, as a, as a people, I think um, that beef probably sits in that hierarchy at the top. Followed closely by poultry and down along after that. And I think that, um, you know, that there is something glorious about when you speak about the standing rib roast. It it, it kind of, it has a a, a trophy-esque feeling um, of that champion of dinners or champion of celebrations. Um, And I think we celebrate around that majesty of that particular cut of meat and i'm i'm thinking as i'm talking because i'm I'm visualizing how it stands so proud and so beautifully and it's a great source of it's a great bounty of texture and of flavor and of um and of so much more because because, you know the first question you'll ask is how do you like your beef done you know and you'll have the people around the table who like the crusty and, and the burnty bits from the outside and You'll have the piece who who likes the well done and, and and the lean. And you'll have the people like you who enjoyed the the more interesting uh pieces or, or sweeter pieces closer to the bone. Um and 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 all of that brings out um our unique character and our, our unique, I suppose, connection with that um time, you know. You have to remind me of the question again. Sorry, I just went, I was thinking about the roast beef.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin,
3: What are some of the iconic dishes involving beef that you think represent Ireland? And, you know, there are beef dishes from around the world that are, they're famous, whether they've earned that category or not. There's Chateaubriand or like beef bourguignon or, and so these dishes that are known, like what are some of the iconic Irish beef dishes that are either like well-known or say should be well-known?
4: Yeah, yeah. You know, when I think of beef, I, I think of the roast, and I think of that that standing rib roast. You know, I, I think that char- for me, that's characteristic of it all. It captures it all. I think we have, uh, over time, grown a, a greater appreciation of much more of the animal, and I think we have um, a, a learned to appreciate more of, of what it has to offer. But I think rather than what one of the what one of the, the trophies is I always think of the underdog sometimes and uh, one of the most beautiful things I think in Irish beef is is corned beef you know where we add salt to beef and uh, and I really enjoy that and uh, I think if the right cut of beef is, is cured uh, beautifully it's something really really special and very unique and I think that it's something that's probably celebrated at different times of the year but kind of a little bit not in, in the main as it should be and I think has um, has wonderful character and unique it, I think the salt brings out another layer in flavour one of a personal favourite of mine would be um, slow cooked oxtail It's probably one of the most delicious things uh, you can possibly contemplate eating and if you have the patience a lasagna made using oxtail is probably one of the most unctuous, delicious delicious things you could ever, ever contemplate making. Because from a texture point of view, from a flavor point of view, and from an overall wow and uh, elevation of simple food, it just takes it to another level. And I think, you know, having the courage or having the curiosity um, to explore different things in a way that makes it or, or brings it to the table in a way that is more acceptable to everybody. Because, Um, it develops the deeper appreciation of the entire anatomy of the animal and understanding the opportunity that is and and brings people to value the lesser known parts of the animal and and to really explore all that is the bounty of harvesting the entire animal.
3: As a butcher, do you um, often feel like you're sort of in this, um, you're not exactly a chef, but you maybe are like a culinary coach to people like when they come in and they're trying to figure out what to make um you know do you do you see education as a big part of the person behind the counter in terms of um like making sure that you know when they take your product home they are going to uh be able to cook it to its full potential
4: I think we underestimate uh, people's culinary talent a lot of the time and and I think I think we're dealing with a customer now uh, who's way way more traveled, uh, way more informed. And I think um, our role, as I, I like how you described it as a culinary coach, is probably the best way of, of describing it because the enthusiasm is coming from different areas. The enthusiasm is coming from that travel and that understanding and that um, that hunger for more. And the enthusiasm is coming from the world of media, which is filtering into everyone's life in different ways, through their through their social channels and through their uh, telephones and through their their curiosity. So, um, I think that that butchering is, from a culinary coach point of view, is is probably a, a great way to describe it. But also, there's a level of uh, or there's a, a role of custodian uh, there for the butcher. To be able to advise and guide, and I think you know to and to understand or to help understand and appreciate the opportunity that may exist and may not be explored just yet, or to encourage people to try and to kind of guide people on that decision-making process. Because I think um, part of the challenge we have as we as as we start to reawaken and how we f- go forward is to utilise more out of what we're producing rather than produce more. And I think that feeds into and underpins the commitment to sustainability and to probably reposition um, that filter that we're looking at the world through and get people to look at it slightly different. So that custodian piece or that, I'm not sure what what word you really describe it, it's custodian of and, and making sure that the customer understands and can get more from and um, and probably learn more, so there's there's a lot in it, you know. Uh, but food coach is a great way to describe it. But I also think that you know, they're as I'm observing it, they're coming to you uh, equipped with something. You know, they they either have a a screenshot of something, or they they have a a cutting from a newspaper, or they're following somebody on some channel or other and they're you know they have a predetermined idea in their head of what they want to do and so you have a fulfillment piece as well because their their inspiration is coming from somebody else so they're doing uh such and such is such and such you know and and can you get me blah 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 and it's easy to fulfill that but i think when the, when the relationship gets built through that connection and you start to you start to develop in a way that where you can add value uh, the adding value is in the journey you can take people on uh, in developing their understanding of the raw material and understanding the, the value and understanding the benefits of and the understanding the whole aspects of it and then of course you know when it comes to cooking meat um when meat meets heat um you know that's where the whole journey becomes really really interesting because When the heat meets the meat um that turns it into something we can all enjoy but how you actually prepare that for the plate you know how you rest it how you carve it the understanding the fiber and direction of the fiber in the meat so you're going with or, or against the grain whatever way you want to do it uh but understanding that is really important as well you know um and i think that's probably the most interesting part for me personally as i developed my interest in food um, was the transfer of knowledge between the larger skills which we the butchery skills and then the kitchen skills which would be the the meat meets the heat and then the result
1: yeah I, I absolutely I love that that you made the connection both to sustainability in terms of using the whole animal and then also to the way that consumers are more and more both educated and inspired both through media social media and also with the way that chefs have a larger voice in terms of influencing the kind of food that people want to make. And I think I sort of I, I sort of have come to this. I've worked in the front of house of restaurants for many years, but I came to sort of being interested in, in butchery from the chef angle and you know learning things about meat and meat preparation that I wasn't aware of into my adult life through working at higher end restaurants. One thing, that you mentioned made a memory stand out to me which was we used to sell this dry aged ribeye at a restaurant that i worked at and i know that customers always used to get really surprised when the chef would would cook it it would take sometimes it would be such a large cut it would take maybe an hour and a half to cook to a medium rare and then it would be taken out and put on put on a cutting board and it would be allowed to rest in the window for i mean max can say for how long like that was wild to me when I first learned that when you cook a steak properly, you shouldn't just take it out of the oven or take it off the range and then just start slicing it up when it was finished, that you actually had to let it sit and rest for maybe longer than most people are are comfortable with in order to keep kind of the juices and the goodness inside.
3: Yeah. And the bigger the piece, the longer it takes to rest. I think most people don't think about it because they're just used to cooking small steaks and the resting time is sort of It just happens naturally in a lot of ways, just, you know, five minutes, but the bigger the piece, then it, sometimes you need to rest for, you know, like a Turkey, you should rest for like, we're all thinking about turkeys over here right now and Turkey, you should rest for like 30 to probably almost an hour, you know, to really make it not dry when you slice it no I,
4: I yeah i totally agree but also the one fascination i have with uh with meat in particular and i, I can't understand how people don't do it more you, you'll notice people you know uh, and they have a fascination and, and it goes back to the wine thing again and there. You think I'm absolutely in love with the wine industry, but the wine industry is really interesting and inspires me a lot. But you'll see people, um, you know, they'll open a bottle of wine and the first thing they'll do is smell the cork of the bottle and they'll let it breathe. You know, they'll talk about breathing and then they decant the wine and you would ask them why are they decanting the wine? To open it up. And there's there's all of that appreciation, and there's a there's a time and a respect and respect for the the length of time it takes. But equally, um, you never see people smelling the meat. And what's really interesting is when you if you uh, went if you if you did a test where you smell different meat, so you smell poultry, you smell lamb, you smell beef, and if you do it then with a blindfold on. And, you know, it goes back to earlier what we said about, you know, different things having different characteristics from different parts of the world or different parts of the country or the iodonic property that the, the sea air has, as opposed to not near the coast. And actually trying to identify what the characteristics through the sense of smell is probably one of the most interesting things I've ever done. And I encourage people all the time to smell meat. Um, and I think... It's, it's an opportunity to connect with it even even more to gain that appreciation that through the senses and particularly through smell to learn an understanding of the uniqueness and the characteristics. And the funny thing about it is, is that if you connect with it when it's, you know, pre at the stage of where the heat or the meat meets the heat, I think it gives you a deeper level of understanding of what to expect in the taste. And then you're almost benchmarking against it to see how it delivers. But there's not a lot of people doing that Uh, are taking that approach but I find it fascinating myself and particularly when you go into an aging chamber with meat and you get that nutty smell of of a beautiful beef aging uh, in a perfect environment and that lovely it's created a seal itself uh, to keep in the goodness and then when you cut take off the cut, cut face of it and it exposes this beautiful ruby, rosy red or ruby red colour. For me, that's like opening the wine. And uh, and then why wouldn't you smell it? You know, you'd smell the outside and then you'd smell what you're after opening. So that's like the cork. And then it's like where you put it in the oven. So you'd actually just decant it by leaving it sitting on the on the countertop or in the kitchen. So it comes to room temperature. and uh, And you gently heat the oven before you before the whole thing, you know so that's the world I live in. you know it's a it's a dreamer's world for for meat and for food, but um, I think fundamentally my appreciation for the subject is so grounded in in my understanding that I got at the feet of my father and understanding the commitment to uh, nurture nature, quality service, and then an appreciation of it. And you know it takes years to to harvest something. And I think, you know, you really need to take time when you're going to enjoy it, that you you connect with it and understand it, if you can. And I think that's something the butcher can do. And I think that the butcher can be that conduit between the land and the table in a different way, uh, and that larger skills need to be developed, not only in, in the domestic environment, but equally in the whole food service world. Because I think a lot of the inspiration from for the retail customer is coming from the food service and you know they were in a restaurant or they saw somebody cooking something in that context so i think those two worlds food service and retail need to work closely together uh, to develop uh and and to develop the the understanding of of the of the product um and an appreciation for it And I think, furthermore, that underpins that whole commitment to sustainability also, because the deeper the appreciation, the more respect. And I think, ultimately, one of the biggest challenges we have is food waste. And I think if you deepen the respect and if you deepen the knowledge, it will kind of go against the grain to waste something. Or you'll see it as something more precious than we see it today, and that's really a, um, food waste is a huge issue globally.
1: You know, on that note, that you, you, we've spoken a little bit about the role of butcher as an educator, and we've also talked a little bit about consumers really being influenced by by chefs and media. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation the Irish Beef Book, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year and is still really popular clearly th- that's a role there where you kind of bridge those communities with that cookbook i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the process of writing that book alongside uh, katie mcginnis
4: um uh, katie is uh, a great friend and uh, a wonderful person and a great home cook um and um and she's a, a journalist and uh, so at the time, about 10 years ago, we were in the middle of the global financial crisis. And uh, I used to have people coming to the shops and they'd be saying, oh, I want to get the cheaper cuts. You know, and the media and, and the newspapers were talking about cheaper cuts and giving people cues on how to live, uh, how to cut the overhead of living to adjust to the new, uh, the challenge of the financial crisis. And uh, word cheap, or cheaper cuts but the word cheap when it comes to food is probably the reason we are where we are in the whole um in the whole world of food you know and our fascination with cheap food has probably got us into the mess we're in and um to me it's like a dagger in the heart when someone uses that because you know i'm not too sure why fillet steak is the price it is um or why sirloin is the price it is But in the world I live in, every cut is of equal value. And if I were the one setting the price and and standards of meat globally, I would make every cut equal value so that it was almost a level playing field because none of it uh, deserves to be labelled as cheap. And cheap is a word that we need to understand and we need to use in its correct context. So... I said to Katie, I said, uh, could you help me do something? And I said, I want to educate. I want to make sure there's an understanding of uh, the value in all of the cuts of meat. And I want to really raise the level of curiosity and the level of curiosity, really, in trying to uh, utilize the cuts of meat in a different way and also to create an, an almost reverence to some of what we've achieved, what we were achieving in the book so that people understood how we valued meat and how we valued the fact that not only were we valuing meat, we were valuing Irish meat. And we were celebrating where we are on the planet and how lucky we were to have nature and and nature's alignment to give us this beautiful bounty. And uh, so we set about doing stuff like, um, I spoke about the oxtail earlier, but topping a pizza with some great oxtail and just doing some beef cheek and uh, flaking it into a a beautiful lasagna or um, a a great steak and kidney pudding made with suet pastry. And that whole journey took us on something quite unique because we started to look at all the the different uh, elements of utilising the carcass. And around that time, we went on a, a journey of discovery where I'd say we ate beef and uh, beef recipes for about uh, 12 months or 18 months before the book was actually published Um, and it brought us to reignite um, beef dripping because um, beef dripping had fallen from grace and uh, during the research for the book i started to look at beef fat obviously and understanding beef fat and where it had a value and we started to render beef fat and we looked at different types of beef fat so we looked at organ fat so in other words kidney suet, as it would be known we looked at channel fat we looked at external body fat we looked at internal body fat and we rendered them individually and what we discovered was that each individual fat from each particular part of the animal had a unique taste. And then we started to look at it and we thought, wow, I wonder if we started to blend it, could we create um, an almost flavor explosion? And uh, we started to do that. And uh, we started to understand how you actually add value in with nature, working with nature, almost conspiring with nature to, to add value. But um, it led us to a, an amazing journey and at the time, we had set up a group of food producers as we were developing the business, which is in the community in uh, around the community of our original shop, where mom and Dad uh, live in Tipperary, and uh, and where the home uh, farm is. And we'd set up in 2006 a group of food producers, and they were um, there's a group of about 32 businesses in that area, all producing artisanal food, and. Whelan's worked, uh, the Whelan business worked with that group uh, to develop um, a community around food production, but also to develop the individual businesses as uh, some of them as supply partners to the Wheelands business as it grew. And at the time, they were all those businesses. And this is maybe more than 10 years ago now. We're all developing their own profile on that, on that in the artisan food sector. And Great Taste in the UK is an international accolade that everyone aspires to win in that sector. And it's where uh, artisan food is based without label uh, on taste alone. And as a group that particular year, um, that group wanted to send products together as a collective to Great Taste to represent Tipperary, the area or the county we're all from, um, as a A centre of excellence for artisan food production. And I remember thinking, how am I going to send meat to London? Uh, Because it'll almost be spoiled by the time it gets there to be even judged. And I remember the challenge at that particular time was sending it over a weekend because judging was on Monday. So I thought, no, 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 we're going at this all wrong. I'll send the dripping And uh, we had worked on on the dripping an awful lot and we had developed the dripping into uh, a unique blend of individual fats that remains a secret recipe in the company. And so the dripping went to London and uh, was judged against the finest gelatos from Italy and the finest cheeses from the Swiss Alps and the finest chutneys and jams from Great Britain and the best meat from God knows where, but there was over 10,000 products. And the process of uh, judging went on over four months. And the Dripping won the Supreme Champion that year. Out of 10,000 products, it was voted number one. And it's now stocked in Fortnum and Mason in London and in Harrods uh, and has been for the last 10 years as a result of its, its journey. And that all came out of of the research for the Irish Beef Book and that curious mind to explore simple things and in a very simple way. Um, And it also came from a really good place of developing community and uh, and growing, building relationships in a way that, you know, sometimes isn't understood. uh, But the value of doing things in a very simple way is really something to be celebrated.
3: That's a really cool story. Um
1: it's making me really hungry. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's like almost yeah. lunch lunchtime. Yeah.
4: When, when it... yeah. I hope the interview is going the way you want it because I don't know, sometimes when I get talking, I, d- I get lost in the world of meat and uh, <laughs> I have so much I have so much to say that I kinda I wonder I hope we're we're on track with the interview because I can't remember what the interview oh, is yeah. about. No,
1: I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm lost in the world of meat with you too. So <laughs> you're doing great. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, it is a food podcast. So for us, it's actually a really cool opportunity to just talk about all these things in great detail. That I think when I would hear, you know, listen to an interview on the radio with like someone such as yourself, they might really just not have the time to really get into the detail or, and, or might gloss over a question that I think that we would think would be really, really interesting to pursue a little further. So for us, it's a chance to just kind of dive in deeper to a lot of the issues that we care about. That, yeah, um, yeah, no, I got So it. I think our last question is about the sort of recent announcement that the EU is moving towards a, a protected status for Irish beef. I'm sure that's news that you have a, a strong opinion about, but along the lines of like what you were just talking about with the drippings of, you know, of a, a simple, something that appears simple, but is quite complex and very special. Once you start thinking about it, Um, the recognition of Irish beef as a category as being something quite special as well. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that protected status, whether you think it's an exciting development or, you know, maybe you have some, some other unique opinion about it.
4: I think that anything that's anything that celebrates, I I think for, you know, uh, for, generations my family have have uh, appreciated and i suppose been very proud of what we've produced um, it's only when you travel and you understand and see other production methods and other approaches that you really appreciate how special what you have is and that isn't saying uh, one is better or other than other than than others it's about travel gives you a great perspective and education also gives you a great perspective so you know the travel elevates your your opinion and and it also gives you that that new perspective but education and when you understand the subject and when you understand the finer points of a subject you really appreciate what you have and i think the pgi status is probably an, uh, an accolade or endorsement that has been recently awarded to irish beef and you kind of wonder what took the EU so long because it's, it's something that's crying out to be done for a long, long time. And it kind of goes back to one of the points I made at the start of, of the interview. Um, hundred and twenty Over 120,000 small holdings in Ireland, uh, that's worth protecting. The diversity, the uniqueness, the individuality, the character, uh, the commitment the heritage, the history, all of those things are worth protecting. But the one word that I have deliberately left out because I want to really make a unique point about it is the tradition. The tradition of of beef and beef production in Ireland is something quite special. And at the heart of that tradition is something really special, which is pride. And uh, even in a neighbouring, in a parish, in a neighbourhood, um the pride that's among people when they sell their stock uh, at the livestock mart you know the price they're paid the rosette they get at the show the amount of uh, commitment to pedigree genetics and the pride that's in that is something really 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 to be proud of and you know as france is to wine ireland can be to beef if we build on what the european Union have awarded us now with the PGI status and start to develop all of what we've spoken about in the interview today, build that lovely curiosity at consumer level and start to add value, not so much in doing something different, but maybe deepening the appreciation by making sure we're able to tell the story about the product we're producing. And that we understand that unique characteristic that we probably take for granted, but others would be fascinated by. And I think communication comes a, comes it becomes a big part of that. And I think that's our opportunity to differentiate and to celebrate the climate and celebrate the um, the geography and celebrate the uniqueness of the landscape, to celebrate the diet of the animal, to to, to celebrate the heathers of the mountain and the unique flavour that potentially they could give um and to celebrate the diet or the unique diet of the animal that maybe yet developed has to be developed in a sustainable way and to communicate sustainability in our practices and to protect those traditional uh, practices that have given us this uniqueness um i think all of that is really rich and i think it's a, it, it's something that has been worked hard to got to get to receive but now that it, the status, or now that it's been recognised, I think we shouldn't stop there. We should, and we have an onus. And we have a responsibility, actually, in my opinion, to, to go on to protect, not only for this generation, but for the generations to come. And we need to put in the foundations so strong that even if the next gener- generation don't understand it, they'll be forced to do it in the way that it has been always done because some things are worth protecting.
1: Absolutely, well said. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. That was a really fascinating discussion, and it's definitely made me want to head straight to our local butcher and start talking <laughs> about meat <laughs> and cooking more.
4: And I also think, you know, that if you are to have a local butcher, privileged because it's not it's not the norm. It's something to support. But equally, I think, you know, I would be passionate about education. And one of the things I'd like to work on is how we educate in not only in in how we educate the consumer, but also how we uh, develop education to attract more people into the industry uh, to be able to provide the service at a level at the level uh, I think could really add value, add value not only to the individuals, but to communities. And you know, sustainability just doesn't end in the production of something. Sustainability is a, is a, is a completeness to it, to industry itself, you know, and that the butcher can be um, that conduit that connects community through uh, a great quality product that is sustainably produced and sold in a, in a sustainable way, and that contributes to, to uh, many different facets. Um, of the supply chain so if you do have a butcher and no matter where this is being listened to in the world um, cherish it protect it try and support it protect it but I think the fundamental thing is to try and understand it and if if you can understand what the butcher is trying to achieve support it uh, cherish it and love it because I believe good meat is an investment in your future health and well-being sustainably sustainably sourced good meat wise
3: words to end an incredible podcast conversation on pat thank you so much for joining us on dyed green today it was really pleasure to speak to you
4: you're very welcome
3: dyed
1: green is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network Food Radio, supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.
3: Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.
1: We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyed green at heritageradionetwork.org.